Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. We've just entered May, and it's spring bursting everywhere, which on one side feels kind of weird with the pandemic. Time just feels like not a thing, and it seems like it was January just a couple weeks ago. At the same time, it has this really awesome energy in the air of everything coming to life and building energy, and it feels like we're getting moved into something really grand. All around me we have the jasmine blooming and the jacaranda trees or they call it the purple panic here which I love and there's just this nice buzzing energy and I hope that this spring is treating all of you well. My guest today is Barb Jenkins and she is so fierce and one of the bravest people that I know and all of the survivors that I meet are the bravest person that I know. And Barb shows true courage in her vulnerability to be true and authentic to who she is in the face of a lot of injustice and threat and harm and choosing to come back to her truth for who she is despite that injustice and refusing to allow that injustice to change her life or silence her any further or deprive her of what's true for her. You're going to hear her story today where she talks about her sexual assault and her rape as well as what happened in her experience with the justice system. It's frightening and infuriating and painful all at the same time. And she also will share a little bit of her victim impact statement. And I find that one of the most sacred things that we can do as part of our community is to hold space for each other as we hear each other's stories and especially our victim impact statements. And you'll probably hear me get a little emotional in the episode because these are emotional things. Sometimes I, I get very awkward about my tears or or my emotions because it feels personal or vulnerable. And at the same time, I think my tears and all of our tears are actually a way of honoring and truly seeing each other. I do believe also that anyone who comes in contact with Barb is truly blessed with knowing her and her presence. She is a powerful member of the organization of Jane Doe No More. We have another episode where she's going to talk more about that organization and how it connects survivors of violence and sexual violence who have been overlooked or treated unfairly in the justice system and is working to make changes in the justice system to more effectively offer us the liberation and the justice we're seeking. So please welcome Barb Jenkins. Hi, Barb. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely getting to have you here and getting to hear your story today. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I am a survivor of multiple sexual assaults. First started when I was eight years old. That was my stepfather. But the one that I most am well known for is the one that happened six years ago when I was 48 years old. I have a a heart for service. And so I was actually volunteering at a mission in Missoula, Montana. I met what I call my lost soul um, at the mission. Uh, This is a person that was extremely poverty ridden, um, not just physically and mentally, but spiritually too. And so like, I've never seen anybody that looked like that before. He's had all of these, his clothes were like hanging off of him in rags. And he smelled putrid um, from never bathing. He'd been on the street for about 13 years. So anyway, I felt very convicted to help this person. And so I started reaching out to him whenever he would come into the day center for his meal. And so I would ask him if he was ready to get off the street yet. And he would say no. After about a year and a half, that started to change to, well, I'm thinking about it. 
And eventually it was, yes, I'm ready to get off the street. And so um, I did all of those things that you do to help people so that they can get their life together. So I um, helped him to get onto food stamps and I helped him to get into housing and I helped him through all of the programs that you had to do in order to get into housing. I would take him shopping with my friend and we would help him with his clothing, his laundry, and we provided all these things for his house, you know, his apartment when he was able to get in one. But along the way, there were two, two incidences prior to the sexual assault that I experienced six years ago. And the first one was in March of 2014, I guess, 2015, I don't, 2014. And he, um, his mom had actually just dropped dead of a heart attack. It was very unexpected. And when I went down to the park where he was living to tell him that he had an appointment to go look at an apartment, his answer to me was to shove me up against some bushes and assault me. Uh, I was pretty upset about that. I told him in no uncertain terms that it wasn't okay. And he apologized profusely saying he would never do that again. And so then if you fast forward eight months down the road, nine months down the road, it was December and uh, we helped him to get into you know, get his Christmas tree and decorate it all up and all of that. And about a month after Christmas, I said, you know, it's probably time to take a tree down, don't you think? And he said, yes. And so um, I went to his place. I had learned to never close the door, never take my shoes off, never take my coat off, things like that uh, when I was around him because I just didn't trust him. But after I decorated his Christmas tree, he walked me to the door, said, thank you. But he shut the door and he did the same thing that he did to me in the park. So at that point, um, I went to his case manager and uh, told him that he had done this to me. And um, because I didn't go to the police, they cut me off and said that, you know, basically it was my fault that he did this. So I was wow. pretty frustrated about that. Um, I sought counseling through the YWCA at that point really upset about it because it brought about a lot of that old trauma that I had experienced as a kid. And I was upset with him because, you know, this is a person that I had put a lot of time and effort into helping. And I, and I did not ever um, want that type of a situation I'm married. So um, I've been married now for 31 years and I have two children, one who's 26 and one who just turned 21 this week. And so to have somebody do that to me was really upsetting to me. And so fast forward to uh, 2015, I had cut com communication completely with him because it, it just was not going anywhere positive and it was getting more and more verbally abusive towards me. And so I just quit communicating with him completely. I was at my office, which is where I'm at right now. And I received um, a phone call at the office and he started to verbally abuse me. And so I hung the phone up and he called right back and continued to verbally abuse me. And so I said, if you call this number again, I'm going to call the police. And um, I hung up. And so instead of calling the office phone at that point, he called my cell phone um, seven times in a row. Prior to that though, I spent an entire month of him stalking me. So I went from having a lost soul to an aggressor to a stalker at this point. And I would get probably 30 text messages a day. Hi, Barbie. Hello, Barbie. What are you doing, Barbie? What's for breakfast, Barbie? What are you doing, Barbie? What's for lunch, Barbie? What are you doing, Barbie? It was constant. And and it was always just real short like that. Um, but it was every day for a month. And I kept thinking, he's going to get tired of this and stop. Um, and so then when he called me at my office that day, uh, I was not expecting that. Um, he'd never, ever called my office before. But then he turned around and he called my cell phone seven times. And he left these really long ranting uh, messages on my phone, accusing me of really crazy things and, you know, having sex with 50 men in a bathroom while he watched and stuff like that. And it's just not nonsensical and it was offensive. And so then I just called my husband and I said, I'm going to file a restraining order on him. And so I did. And, um, 
as soon as the restraining order was served to him, he vacated his apartment and just disappeared. Um, so for about a month, um, there was no communication. So I thought, you know, good, it's, it's over. It's, you know, uh, I went to the courthouse to have the, uh, restraining order signed into effect and he showed up, but, um, prior to that day, he had longer hair than mine. It was very messy and dirty and long beard and mustache. And, uh, as I said, he stunk horribly, but when he showed up at the courthouse that day, he had completely shaved his head and completely shaved his face. And I didn't even recognize him. And, um, so when he started talking to me, he said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said those things. I shouldn't have done what I did, blah, blah, blah. And I, at that point, I just told him it's too late. You should have thought about that sooner. And um, I went into the office and he followed me into the office while we were waiting for the judge. So I actually had to have somebody come and remove him because he wouldn't leave me alone even then. That uh, restraining order got signed into effect. And then after that, it was crickets and his family hadn't heard from him. I hadn't heard from him. Nobody saw him. And although now I knew that he looked different, in retrospect, I, I can see that he was definitely stalking me during that time. You know, I, it, changing his appearance like that, where I wouldn't recognize him, was um, intentional. So my husband had to go to um, Las Vegas on business. And the prior week, I, I was walking along um, there's a swimming pool and then the university is like about 5k mile you know 5k pathway between the two and I would do that on my lunch break uh, after I did the counseling um, the counselor said well you know one of the things that you can do is you can like pick up sticks and you know throw them into the river and you could say this is for when you did this and this is for when you did that or this is for when you said this you know and it was like a symbolic thing of letting your your trauma go and I needed to figure out a way to let that go because it was really bothering me and so when I was down there and this is after the restraining order had been served I was down there doing that this is for when you assaulted me in March, this is for when you assaulted me in January, this is for the things that you said to me on my phone. And I literally turned around and there he was right there. It worried me, you know, at first. And um, he said, I, I just want to apologize to you for the things that I said. And I said, fine, you apologized. And I left the park. The next day, I'm thinking to myself, well, I still want to go walking. and I do this on my lunch break every day. But I'll just stay on the path. I won't go down next to the river because obviously I can't do that again. And so I was walking on the walking path and I heard very heavy, clumpy footsteps behind me. And I turn around and there he was again, chasing after me. So he asked me if I would sit down and talk to him. And I said, no, I said, there's a restraining order against you and I don't want to talk to you. And he said, well, was that your idea? And I said, well, yes, you didn't give me any choice. So he again apologized to me for his actions. And I said, fine, I forgive you. And I left the park um, because I used to run all the time. That was my way of clearing my head. I was running the weekend and on that Sunday, and I got about a mile or so away from my home and I couldn't go any further because my left foot was just really in a lot of pain. And um, so I called my son and had him come pick me up. Turns out that I ended up basically tearing all of those tendons and stuff on the bottom of my foot. It's called plantar fasciitis. So it was really, really painful. And I couldn't put any weight down on my foot. Um, and because I've had multiple injuries and stuff to my ankles, I had crutches at home. And so I was using the crutches. Well, while I was out running, I thought to myself, so while I was out running, I'm thinking about those two chance encounters. And I realized that they weren't chance encounters that, you know, he was intentionally looking for me. And so in my own wisdom, I decided that it would be wise for me to go down there. Um, had many, many times where I had had spoke to him face to face and had never been hurt. Um, and so I didn't expect that would be any different. Um, but I did go down to the park that Monday and um, it was about 1030 in the morning or so. And I found him and I said, look, I'm just here for a minute. Um, I want to talk to you face to face, and then I'm going to leave. And I won't ever be back at this park. 
And uh, it was during that interaction, uh, he kept interrupting me and um, talking about my body, saying things that weren't appropriate for him to say to me because he's not my husband. And I told him that his answer to me was uh, to attack me. And so there was this, um, there was a big log that had fallen and that is where he would make his bed. Um, he would lay down next to that log, a little bit of a shield from the weather, I guess. Um, but it hit me at the small of my back and, and he knew that I was injured because he had squeezed my foot. And when I winced, he knew I was really injured. Anyway, he looked at me and he said, well, I have you trapped and you're crippled. So, and he looked up to the walking path, which, you know, was to my right. And he looked back at me and proceeded to rape me um, while I'm standing on my feet. Um, so I have crutches under my arms and I'm trying to prevent him from getting my, my clothes down and I couldn't prevent him. I didn't have the ability to stand on my left foot at all. And I, I was pretty well um, a sitting duck. But anyways, while he was attacking me, there were three people that walked by on that walking path and um, they looked down and, and saw what was happening, but they just didn't help me. And so that's a part of my story too. That's really been bothersome. I heard today that um, there are more bystanders than there are perpetrators and victims. Mm, wow. More bystanders than perpetrators and victims, but yet more bystanders don't do anything mm -hmm. to help the, the victim. And so uh, after he was done, he, well, I disassociated while he was doing that to me. Um, my, my reactions when I was a kid was to freeze and, and have that tonic immobility, you know, where it, head to toe, absolute numb. The only thing that I could do to fight him was to beg him not to do what he was doing. You know, I kept asking him, please don't do this. Please think about what you're doing. Please stop. Please don't do this. But he just ignored me. After, after the, the rape, I stumbled out of the park. I met another person come, uh, on the walking path. And at that point I was, you know, bawling my eyes out and really struggling with the crutches and he just also walked right on by me, didn't even ask me if I was okay. And I, I think if he had said, are you okay? I would have said that man just raped me. And, and then who knows what would have happened. But as with a lot of rape survivors, uh, they tell us, you know, don't wash anything, go to the uh, hospital, get a, a rape kit done. And, you know, don't change your clothes. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you, you're not thinking straight when you've got trauma going through your brain. So mm -hmm. I did everything wrong um, in that respect. I went home and um, I sat on my couch and I cried and I had this overwhelming stench in my nose because at some point he had pulled my head into his armpit and I couldn't, I couldn't smell anything but that uh, awful body odor, just like a dead body. And so I had this overwhelming desire to shower. And so um, I also had the feeling of him, you know, on me. I just wanted it gone. And Unfortunately, showering didn't take that away. It didn't take it away for a long time, several months. I did wash my clothes because I couldn't stand that either. And when I picked them up and stuck them in the wash machine, I went right back upstairs and showered again. So um, it just kind of gives you an idea of the level of trauma that I was in at that point. I realized that I had sunk into a very deep, dark hole of despair and, um, and depression. And I just... Uh, I felt very violated and like, you know, everything that I had done, my whole identity had been ripped away from me in the mm -hmm. moments that it took for him to do that to me. And so um, I, I was very, very lost for a while. I did report it. I didn't report it that day. I actually reported the next day. It was a, a very difficult decision because my husband was still out of town. My children didn't know what had happened to me. I hadn't said a word to anybody. And I, all I could think of was, What's going to happen if I report this crime? Am, am I going to lose my family? Am I going to lose my reputation? Are they going to blame me? You know, and all of these things were playing out in my brain. The bottom line was that I felt like I could not go on if I didn't report it. And so I finally decided to just go ahead and report it. And then I ended up going to First Step in Missoula and having all of the shots and medications for sexually transmitted diseases. 
at that point, um, they offered to to do the rape kit for me. And I said, no, because I couldn't even, I, I just didn't want anybody to touch my body, much less look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just told me, you know, if you have any problems later, let us know. And it was a few days later and I just was in so much pain. It, it wasn't healing. And so I did go in and, and have the exam. And at that point, they told me that I was healing from a lot of bruising and abrasions. And so that's the attack part. <laughs> uh, mm. And then we get into the, um, the justice system part of it. I was terrified. They assigned two women public defenders to defend him. And then the case was to, it took a while. It, it took like 13 days before they actually even arrested him for that, which I didn't understand. Jeez. It was horribly frustrating to me in retrospect and in talking to the police and in talking to the, the county attorney, who's now my friend, I understand that they were building this case and, but they didn't communicate that to me. They didn't communicate why they weren't arresting him. And um, they weren't communicating to me as far as like all the different things that they needed to gather in order to have a real solid case. And so ultimately though, they just, dis- they did decide to go ahead and, and prosecute him for the sexual assault. But the first arrest that they made was on the violation of the protective order. And he bonded out immediately, had to go back the next day. And I had heard um, from his brother that he was planning on moving to another state like Missouri. And so I went to the detective and I said, you've got to stop him from leaving. He's like, well, if he leaves town, we'll just go get him. And I'm like, no, he needs to not leave town (laughs) because I knew it would be a longer issue if he did. So the detective asked me, well, what is it that you want me to do? And I said, I want justice. I want justice for what he did to me because it's not right what he did to me. He said, I promise you that we will we'll get justice. And so when he came in the next day for to answer to the charges of the uh, protective order is when they arrested him for the rape. And then, you know, the whole the whole thing started and it was a, a very long process. It was October 15th, 2015, when I was raped. And it was September of 2016, when we finally went through trial. It was a long time. And so there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that happened in that time, like lots of, of meetings with the county attorney, lots of meetings with the police department, lots of meetings with counselors. I exhausted the YWCA, the University of Montana has the Student Assault Resource Center. I exhausted that. And then I ended up in professional counseling for a really long time. Thankfully, the state paid for that for me. So from the um, victim compensation fund, mm-hmm. it was really hard. One of the things that was the hardest for me and and when I really realized that it wasn't necessarily him that was going to be on trial, but me and my family was when I met with the public defenders prior to trial. I was told that it might be an hour to two hours, but it wouldn't be any longer than that. It was nearly five hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. They sat there with incredibly snarky looks on their face, glaring at me the whole time, mocking me and trying to spin together some scenario that I was a lovesick woman who offered myself to him for sex and he rebuffed me. And so therefore I made this whole thing up. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was really, really frustrating. And um, I had to take a break during that. And I went into the county attorney's office and I just broke down and cried. And they're like, you're doing great. Just, you know, tell the truth and be strong and you're going to be fine. So when I went back in there, I was very resolved. I didn't want to give them the satisfaction of letting them see me cry. Anyway, I got through that. And then when my husband went in for his quote unquote interview, and it was really an interrogation, honestly. Uh, there were four or five public defenders in the room across the table from my husband. And then just the, the two county attorneys and the victim advocate in the room with him. And it was real clear at that point that they were going to try and make him into this person that he's not um, some kind of a, an abusive man or something. And he, and he just isn't. So that was when we realized that we were actually the ones that were on trial and not my perpetrator. We went to trial. Um, It lasted for two weeks. I was on the stand myself for 12 hours, six with the county attorneys and six with the public defenders. 
And the county attorney's office told me, you know, we're going to ask all of the questions that we can think of that, that they'll ask because it's easier coming from us. And if they try to ask those things, we can say asked and answered. So I was happy that they did that, but it was really hard. And um, I had asked all of our friends and stuff, just don't even come into the courtroom with me. I don't want you there. I didn't want them to see all of the things that, that were, that was happening. I didn't want to hear, I didn't want them to hear all the things that they were saying about me because it wasn't true. And I, it just mm -hmm. really bothered me during the trial. One of the things that was said to me by the public defender was, um, she asked me if it was flattering to be raped. I had this little rock in my hand that said, pray as I'm a Christian mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm looking at this rock and I'm twirling it in my fingers thinking if I just throw it just right, I might hit her right there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> when, I, I really wanted to, I, I mm. so wanted to, and there's so many things that I wanted to say, but what came out of my mouth was flattery is you have nice hair, Barb. Or flattery is you have pretty eyes, Barb. Or flattery is I like your outfit, Barb. What he did to me was not flattery. What he did to me was rape. And that was my answer. And I'm so proud of myself for that. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I really, I, there were so many things I wanted to say. But when she asked that question, county attorney's mouths fell open. The judge didn't say anything. I'm sure that she was shocked too. But yeah, that was, that was the nastiest thing that they could have said to me. And I'm sure that they wanted to rattle me and, and make me cause a scene or something like that, mm -hmm. but they didn't. So, um, my husband was on the stand for about four hours and proceeded to beat him up a lot. Anyway, the, the trial was over and the jury found him guilty and sentenced him, uh, uh, well, they found him guilty. And then we had to go wait another long period of time. So that was September. And it was April of the next year that he was actually sentenced. And do you mind if I read part of my victim impact statement? Not at all. Please do. Okay. I'm only going to read just a, a couple of blips from it. And that'll give you a little bit of an idea of what I got to say to him. Being Jane Doe was really troublesome to me. I'm proud of who I am and I don't have anything to be ashamed of. And so being labeled as Jane Doe or the alleged victim was really insulting to me. So I stood up in front of him and I said, hello, my name is Jane Doe. You stole my identity. You stole my peace. You opened the floodgates of my eyes and burst the dam. You tried to crush my spirit. You stole what wasn't yours to take. You disregarded me as a human being. You closed your ears to my pleas. You repaid my selflessness with your selfishness. You mocked me for my faith. You drug my name through the mud and slung dirt at my face all the while pretending you didn't do this. I've wondered over and over again, how, why, how could you, the person I freely gave my friendship to turn around and rape me? And then later I said, when I look in the mirror, I wonder who that is looking back at me because I don't recognize that woman. She has a haunted expression in those eyes. You dimmed the brightness she once had in her eyes. She doesn't smile and laugh freely anymore. She's guarded and has deep sadness in her heart. She's a shadow of someone I once knew. Do you remember that person? I do. And then at the very end, I said, I took back my name. I said, hello. My name is no longer Jane Doe. Rest in peace, Jane. Hello. My name is strength. Hello. My name is courage. Hello. My name is dignity. My name is Barb Jenkins, and you did not succeed in destroying me. It was pretty funny because when he was um, listening to me read my victim impact statement, at one point he tried to interrupt me, and I just put him in his place, and I said, mm -mm, this is my turn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had to sit through all of that and, and listen to all of the horrible things that they wanted to say about me and make me into the slut or a whore that I wasn't. And mm -hmm. instead of saying, you know, Instead of, of what did she do? What did she, why did she go down to the park? Why did he rape her? That's right. the question. So anyway, um, that's, that's my story in a nutshell. Um, but then it gets better. Uh, <laughs> so he was sentenced to 40 years with 20 suspended. But right before the judge sentenced him, she asked him, 
is there anything that you would like to tell the court before I sentence you? And so he rambled on for probably 10 or 15 minutes and she finally stopped him and said, no, I need to know if there's anything that you would like to tell the court that has to do with my sentencing of you. And he said, well, I am glad that she says that she forgives me because in my victim impact statement, I told him that I forgave him, but my forgiveness was for me, not for him. And uh, so the judge said, well, is there a reason why you're glad Mrs. Jenkins says that she forgives you? Is there something that she needs to forgive you for? And at that point he had a, what did I do? Look on his face. Right. And uh, so he hemmed and hawed a little bit more and he goes, nah. So the judge leaned in towards him. She was like this little grandmothery type judge, you know, older lady. She leans into him and she says, are you sure that there isn't something that you would like to tell the court? Surely there's some reason why you said you're thankful that she's forgiven you. And so again, he got that look on his face and his uh, attorneys were, you know, wringing their hands going, you know, (laughs) and finally he said, "Um, I'm just sorry that this took up so much of your time. So that's the, that's the closest that I ever got to an acknowledgement from him that he did what I said he did. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was pretty powerful. So, but anyway, yeah. So he got sent off to prison and, uh, he was sent to the state prison and then transferred to one of the regional prisons. And while he was there, he, um, uh, he kicked a puppy repeatedly and one of the prisoners did not take kindly to that. So he followed him into his cell and proceeded to, to kick his head into the ground. And so then we were called into the county attorney's office again, and they asked us if we would have a problem with a medical parole form because he was supposed to die within two weeks. And we said, well, we're not monsters. And so sure. Problem is, is that he had sex offender behind his name, so they couldn't put him into a long-term care facility. And so he sat in the hospital and unfortunately, or fortunately for him, he did not die. Um, I'm not a cruel person and I, and I don't wish bad things on anybody, including him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did not die. And so um, eventually he was sent back to prison again. Fast forward to January of 2019. And I was doing this um, panel discussion at the University of Montana on the complexities of sexual assault. And I had this wonderful group of people that were on that, including the founder of Jane Donamore, the organization that I'm a part of now. And it was uh, really powerful. But the, the county attorney that I've become friends with, Susie Boylan is her name. And she said, um, so oral arguments are in two weeks. And I said, what? She said, oral arguments are in two weeks. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She says, well, for the case. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, the appeal. And I said, what appeal? And at that point, she realized that we had not been told. She had been moved to a different area at the county attorney's office. So she was not working sex crimes anymore. And so she, if she had known that we weren't told, she probably would have told us. But we were not told. And so two weeks and oral arguments were before the Supreme Court. So with appeals, they have to be filed within two weeks after a a sentencing. So here we had over a year, you know, that he had been gone and nobody said anything to us. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, where it's almost a year, I guess. So anyway, my husband and my son went to the Supreme Court hearing. And uh, remember, I told you that I washed my clothes and I took shower and all of that. So the judges, the Supreme Court justices were laughing and making jokes at my expense because there was still trace DNA in my clothing. The appeal was about the DNA. The judge uh, in the case said, we're not going to allow it because even if there's DNA stained in your clothing, you can't hold a woman's past sexual history against her in a rape trial. That's exactly what they wanted to do. And the judge said no. So they took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided to not uphold the rape shield law in Montana. They overturned his conviction and I was given one week to decide whether or not I could go back through trial. As soon as I heard that, I had like a major, major rock in my gut and all of my anxiety and um, the PTSD that I've been dealing with for the last six years got really, really bad. And 
Um, I met with all the victim liaisons in the state trying to figure out what to do. And ultimately, I decided not to go back through trial because I didn't feel like my family could survive that again. It was really traumatic for all of us. And given his physical limitations after the beating that he had, I felt like it, it just wouldn't serve any purpose. And they released him in Missoula in my community in August of 2019. And he's been in the area ever since. Mm. That's my story, Kelsey. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely a harrowing story of, uh, especially a system repeatedly attacking you. And also like so many moments of being completely let down by different people. And there's so many things that I, it's like that I wanted to touch on and talk a little bit more about. And, and I think I'm, I'm still getting stuck and so baffled or maybe not baffled, but very angry about this idea that the defense's defense ultimately is simply just to attack you um, to the degree where they're pulling in your husband who had nothing to do with this incident and even and putting him on the stand, which it's just like, it's mind boggling how this, because this is the only crime in which somebody puts the victim on the stand and decides that their character and alternative theories about consent could be what a de- could be used as a defense. Like nobody does that if mm-hmm. like you're there, you know, accusing somebody of armed robbery. They're not like, well, you know, it seemed like you actually really were inviting him into your house. Like, are you sure you weren't just like having a nice dinner and, you know, you got kind of mad at him. So now you charge him like that never happens. But it's, I guess for me, that just always points out something particularly monstrous about people with how they, how they address rape and what is whatever it is that's within them about, about rape that comes out is just so dark and beastly to address it in such a way to be that cruel to any person. um, But especially somebody who has gone through something incredibly horrifying and obliterating and to respond in such a way, you know, in that comment about being, it being flattering. It's like, how does that have anything to do with whether or not he committed this crime? And, and like you said, like, it's just this, this way of being able to intimidate victims out of pushing for charges. And that that's like kind of what we've seen. I would like to say historically, but this is like right now time happening is that these are just tactics simply because, and they work to get victims to just withdraw, withdraw charges that, that the court process is so traumatic. They aren't able to actually proceed and um, defense is able to get their, their client off the charges simply because no one wants to proceed because of that. And I know different States, I think you mentioned like Montana having a shield law and different states have enacted different laws around like what is permissible for defense to bring up and to discuss, which has regulated it somewhat a little bit more. I think in in the state of California, that's one of the things is that just like you said, like the past sexual history of the victim is not something that can be discussed. I think there's other laws around like, you know, accusing the victim of participating in some way, shape or form is, is something that can't be discussed that like defense has to be focused on the alleged perpetrator or whatever, but not all states have such thorough laws. Most don't. One of the things that, you know, we, my husband and I, first of all, I have nothing to hide. And so I was perfectly okay with them taking my clothing and testing it further because I know, I know that I haven't been with anybody, but my husband mm-hmm. and, and so they weren't going to find anything except for DNA from my husband and maybe my son's, you know, who was his clothing was in the wash machine. The, the lucky break for him was that I washed my clothing, even though there was DNA where I said to look um, and it, and it was his it wasn't strong enough um, to conclusively say that it was his. And so they wanted to run with that and paint me as promiscuous. And 
loose. And everything that I did for him, everything that I said, everything that I did, they tried to twist it into this scenario to fit, you know, whatever. And he's mentally ill. And so therefore he doesn't know right from wrong. Well, that's bull crap. He absolutely knew right from wrong. When he stood in front of me and said, well, you're crippled and I have you trapped. So he made a choice to rape me right then. And, and I really think that he made the choice to rape me prior to me ever going down there. And honestly, and truly, I believe with all of my heart that if I had not gone down to the park that day, it would have been another day and he would have done this regardless of where I was. So I've come to really believe that and understand that about him, that it was a, it's, it was never about sex anyways. You know, it never is. It's about power and control and mm-hmm. he couldn't control me and I had already, you know, made very clear that I was not going to have anything to do with him because of the way that he was behaving and, you know, put me into situations that I wasn't comfortable with and, you know, Mm -hmm. crossed my boundaries and things like that. So that was on him. That's not me. And I think that, you know, what's so important about this story is that, you know, and I know we, we talked about this when we spoke previously about how much pressure there is on victims from people who are not survivors to report um, and to go willingly go through this process, like to the point where it's most people, it is their response like that, you know, oh, I was assaulted. Okay. You should report that. Or did you report that? And in part, I I think that there's, for some people, it is very well-meaning. Like they really do want, you know, there to be justice. They want there to be change. They want things to be helpful. I've also noticed for some people, it is a certain, they're using it as a marker of doubt in survivors of like, well, if you didn't report it, then it must not have been that big of a deal or it must not have really happened. Mm -hmm. And then we have stories like yours that show us like how much it costs survivors and their families to come forward and to be able to make that report you were one of the reports that actually made it to trial and that made it through a trial. And even a very small percentage. Yeah. It's extremely small percentage that even gets that far, Mm -hmm. you know, and for all of that to happen to you and to your family through that, you know, of course, when they appealed it on an absolutely disgusting ruling, you know, I don't think anybody could say anything about what would be the right choice there about whether or not to go through that again and especially because of the impact that it had on so many areas of your life. And, and I know like in, in the next episode, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you have reclaimed so much awesome power and are doing so much work in confronting the system that, that really failed you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I know we're, we're really at the end of some time here. Something important you mentioned early too, that I don't want to move past is the bystanders um, that you talked about as well. And I can only imagine how heartbreaking that was to watch people walk by. Yeah. I talk about that all the time. I tell people all the time, you know, if you're not sure what you're seeing, you've got options. You can, from them, from the three people that were on that path, they could have hollered down at me. Are you okay? If they had taken the time to really look at my face, they would have known I wasn't okay or see what he was doing to me, they would have known that I was not okay. They could have called 911. The police department is literally across the street from the park, super close. They could have called 911. I don't know what I'm seeing. I'm not sure, but I think, and the police would have come, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they could have, there were three of them, you know, they They could have just gone down so much. They could have. And I understand that there's this fear uh, of, getting involved because they, you don't want to get hurt or whatever, or maybe you're, you don't know what you're seeing for sure. Like what would it have hurt? Hey, are you okay? No. Mm -hmm. You know, I may not have been able to verbally say anything at that point, you know? And so I I don't know, it just really bothers me. And and I've thought about those three people uh, very often, like, how did you sleep that night? Do you Mm -hmm. know what you, do you know what you, what you did by walking by? Do you know how much you hurt me by walking by, Mm -hmm. you know, not just what he did to me, which hurt me deeply, but what they did or didn't do Mm -hmm. really hurt me. The man on the walking path, you know, as I was trying to get out of the park, 
you know, I was scared that I was going to be followed. I didn't know if he was going to kill me. There were, you know, at one point in the attack, he could have snapped my neck, you know, because prior to what he did, you know, he, he did some other things. And it was just like, you know, like when he pulled my head into his armpit, it would have been easy for him to just go. But it, it's, it blows my mind that anybody could walk by and, and just be so heartless. Like, you know, not everything that you see is what you see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So I do, I hold them accountable too. And that's one of the things I know there's a lot of research about bystander stuff and it's diffusion of responsibility of like, well, somebody, somebody will handle it. And it's like, yeah, no, it's just, it's just you and, and, and this other person or, you know, the kind of like, not my problem situation. And I, I think that, you know, what, what you're saying is really important is to, really respond with accountability. We don't want to actually absolve everybody of responsibility, especially when we exist in a rape culture that holds victims and survivors accountable for what happened to them. Like the only thing that we're making change in this world is if we hold communities responsible for rapists. And this is part of that is like bystanders who are just, you know, permitting and allowing something to happen whether that is like literal bystanders watching this happen and and walking away, you know, and then also people who are noticing being told this is happening and still not intervening effectively as a community. And, and I mean, and that's part of the infuriating thing is to be simultaneously blamed for something that happens to us and told that we're somehow supposed to make it stop, but then nobody is willing to step in, you know, or take responsibility themselves for their roles that they're playing. And I think that, I mean, just like you're saying, if you see something, say something, and, and yeah, and this idea that people are like, well, I'm not sure what I'm seeing. It might not be a problem, you know, la, la, la. I don't want to, you know, make a ruckus and make a ruckus. Yeah. It's like make a ruckus. I know I've definitely, I've called the police on things that I wasn't sure what was happening. And I told them that I was like, I don't know what's going on, but it looks like this, you know, this is where it's located. Like, this is where, where, where I am. This is what's going on. And they come on by and yeah, they're not necessarily approaching with like guns drawn kind of thing on something they're not sure of, but they're there and they're ready to step in if they need to and get support and how, how valuable and important that would have been to have had Mm -hmm. something intervene. Yeah. You said something about rape culture, you know, and Mm -hmm. I had somebody very close to me, very close to me, really hurt me uh, because they said, well, did you scream? Did you fight? Did you bite? Mm -hmm. Did you scratch? Did you knee him in the nuts? You know, (laughs) I would have done this or I would have done that. You don't know what you will do until you're in that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. You have no idea what's going on on top of that. And this, I, I talk about one of my solo episodes about what trauma responses are and our body is designed to actually shut down when a threat is that close in physical proximity, it is not mm-hmm. going to fight because that's going to potentially do more harm. And so it's, and it's something that survivors definitely feel a lot of guilt and shame around because they feel their body totally freeze and shut down, you know, and they themselves are asking like, why didn't I fight off or fight back? And it takes a lot of healing to kind of get to that side of, one, not just accepting that our bodies did what they needed to do, you know, to keep us safe and to get us through this horrible moment and to keep us alive, but that there actually might've been some wisdom to that decision that we weren't necessarily able to access because we were in like terror at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, Such an immense dread. Yeah. Just this horrible dread inside. Yeah. You know what's going to happen and you can't stop it. It's that kind of weird feeling. I know for me, when people say stuff like that to anybody, not just to me, but to any survivor. And I think that's important to point out is, you know, when, when you're heard saying stuff like that to any survivor or about any survivor, we all notice, but that it definitely feels like I'm somehow supposed to earn my like victimhood, you know, that I had to have done all these things to have fought and to to have caused some sort of ruckus or damage or something you know to then be able to be like okay this this did happen to me and and without any of those things then yeah like i i'm not 
truly a victim here. And it's, again, it's that kind of like monstrous beast inside of people on how they address rape and, you know, whether that's like, you know, lots of deep seated misogyny or whatever it might be, you know, that comes up out of people that makes them think that somehow this is something where we can question whether or not it's okay to do to people. And I think that's also part of what makes sharing stories so important that we're not letting people ignore them and ignore our stories and ignore what happened Mm -hmm. um, and act like this is just either this is not happening or it's just part of life. And it's like, this is not, this is not part of life. No, this is not the life that I'm going to be a part of. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is the attitude for sure, but it should not be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. We're going to move next into an episode where you get to share all of the amazing things that you're doing (laughs) as part of confronting some of these things, which I'm really excited to share with everybody. So that will be on shortly. Thank you. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.